0: Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSE podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. If we were to rewrite the system of who's allowed to provide legal advice, we would never recreate what we have today. We'd never recreate a system where you need to spend three years in and- 100, 200K on your education just to provide the most basic legal advice. We need to reform these anti-civil rights, unauthorized practice of the law policies in every state that guarantee we'll never have equal rights under the law. Because what UPL rules do today is they restrict the supply of help that's available. And if we continue to restrict the supply of help in the same way we do today, we've done for the last hundred years, we will never reach equal rights under the law. Hello, and welcome to Talk Justice, an
1: LSC podcast. I'm your host, Ron Flagg, president of the Legal Services Corporation. LSC's mission is devoted to funding and promoting access to civil justice in America. In today's episode, we discuss shifting the narrative on access to justice advocacy. I'm joined today by Joe Kennedy and Rohan Pavluri. Joe Kennedy represented Massachusetts 4th District from 2013 to 2021. Since leaving office, Joe has founded Project Groundwork, which focuses on boosting community organizing efforts on the local level across the country. This June, President Biden appointed Joe to be a member of the President's Commission on White House Fellowships. Previously, he served as an assistant district attorney in both the Middlesex County and Cape and Islands District Attorney's offices. Joe has been a longtime champion of LSC and civil legal aid. He co-founded the Bipartisan Access to Civil Legal Services Caucus with Representative Susan Brooks of Indiana, and has frequently spoken in support of LSC in the House and elsewhere. Rohan Pavluri is the CEO and co-founder of Upsolve, one of America's leading resources helping low-income and working-class families overcome financial distress. He graduated from Harvard College in 2018 and just three years later was named to the Time 100 Next List. Rohan is also a member of the Legal Service Corporation's Emerging Leaders Council, a board director of the National Access to Justice Center, which is housed at Fordham Law School, and a committee member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences Making Justice Accessible Project. In 2019, Rohan and Upsal were awarded the Robin Hood Foundation Heroes Award for extraordinary contributions in the fight against poverty. Thanks to both of you for joining in our talk today about shifting the narrative on access to justice advocacy. You are both eloquent advocates on expanding access to justice and are well positioned to help us think strategically on how best to do that what messages will resonate with the public and with public decision-makers. So let's get right to it. And Joe, let's start with you. When people hear the term justice or the phrase access to justice, they may think about courtrooms and lawyers or the police and criminal justice issues. But what we're talking about today is civil justice. And for starters, can you tell us what are the areas of everyday life in which civil legal rights exist and civil legal issues arise? And what do these legal rights today look like to Americans living in poverty?
2: Ron, first off, just thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me. Thank you for your incredible leadership at the helm of uh, this organization. I am a huge believer in LSC because I know the work that LSC does Um, and Uh, Not just from the advocacy and the engagement with federal policymakers, but through the field grants and and efforts down at a local level to make sure that the law treats everybody fairly, which is in the foundation of our most sacred and founding documents in this country. That that idea is etched in stone above the doors of the Supreme Court. Um, I know it's what motivates uh, Rohan, and I'm incredibly honored to be here with him. Uh, today is trying to make good on those those fundamental promises that we as a nation make our people and where we still fall far short. And so I'm really honored and thrilled to be here with you and to have this conversation. I, I think it's critical for people to, to think of when we think about civil justice, right? Um, most people think of, of the protections that we have, that we enjoy. The ones that come to mind, uh, I think almost immediately are the Miranda rights, right? When people get arrested, you, you're hear watching all the, the cop shows. Um, you know, you got to write to remain in silence. Uh, anything you say can it will be used against a court of law, you have to write it to an attorney. Um, the basic protections that anybody has when they're charged with a crime. It, it turns out that there's all sorts of different civil protections that we as citizens also enjoy that are codified into law, and, and that's probably not surprising, although we don't think about them all that much. But whether that's from veterans benefits or housing law, Um, domestic violence as a domestic violence victim, not just in the criminal side of things, but on the civil side and and much of domestic violence uh, law, a lot of that does impact actually our civil litigation system. Disability access is another way, um, another example, and, and there's plenty of others. I spent time while I was a law student in a legal aid clinic focused on housing law and if you think about that, in a state like Massachusetts, there's actually pretty robust rights for tenants put in place to try to make sure that your the home that you're renting, the apartment that you're renting, is safe. It meets basic standards of, of our health code, called the state sanitary code. It's um, a place where your, your kids are going to be, you don't have to worry about, you shouldn't have to worry about lead paint. There's various protections put in place to make sure that it's a, a safe and healthy place to live. If there's a problem with that, if the house doesn't do that, if the landlord isn't fixing things when they're breaking, you have a right to go to court and get the landlord to fix them. The problem is, is that most people don't know about that. And the one of the fundamental lessons of our legal system is that those protections that are codified in law are only as good as somebody's ability to enforce them, as somebody's ability to exercise them. And where we see, what we see in civil law far too often is that that onus, that burden, is put on the individual whose rights are being infringed, that family living in a, an apartment that is infested with mold, to know that there's those protections, to know that they're being violated, to understand how to actually seek redress, and then to hold the landlord, in this case, accountable. And all of that burden ends up falling oftentimes on the individual whose rights are being oppressed, to try to navigate through it. In the criminal justice system, we say, okay, well, the police are gonna do that. And that's what they do every day. And there's an entire structure built up around it. That disparity ends up meaning that far too often those protections aren't actually enforced or taken advantage of, unless you know about them or have the money to access them. And so you have this enormous disparity with regards to how people of means are able to get those protections and how essentially people living in poverty don't.
1: Well, that's a a great segue to a question for Rohan. Ron, you and Joe recently wrote in an op-ed that appeared on CNN, quote, your rights shouldn't come at a price. What did you mean by that?
0: In so many ways, the legal fees that we make low-income people pay in order to access their civil legal rights are these barriers that stand in the way of them participating in our democracy and in the way of the promise of equal rights under the law. Uh, and for, for me, it's sort of a simple thing Legal fees in so many areas of poverty law are like modern day poll taxes. If you can't pay those fees, you can't access your rights. And that's the, uh, the, the point we're trying to make here is we have modern day poll taxes in our American democracy that stop people from accessing these rights that are supposed to be guaranteed. We're going to get in a moment to
1: these lack of rights or the difficulties and the barriers in enforcing the rights. That's something that both you see, and it's something that we at LSC and our legal aid programs we fund see every day. But what, what's your sense as to how well known the existence of these rights are and the existence of barriers to enforcing these rights? Is this something that the average citizen knows about? Or you know, what's your sense of that?
0: I think most people who I talk to just assume that if you can't afford a lawyer, no matter your legal problem, you're given a free lawyer because there's this presence within our criminal justice system of right to counsel, and people don't really distinguish in in so many cases this difference between civil and criminal. They just think the legal system, I get a free lawyer if I can't afford one. And as we know, that's not the case for millions of people who face these issues around safety, around housing, around uh, food, uh, around disability access. So I really don't think this is on the national dialogue. And that's why I'm working on this problem is because I think it's one of the fundamental Injustice is in America, and it's not really part of our national consciousness. And the thing that I'm really excited about is trying to insert it into our national consciousness. And that's why I think the language of civil rights is so important, because voting isn't the only civil right. There are other literally civil legal rights that are available to people that they cannot access. And as a community, the legal establishment, we've used the term access to justice to refer to this issue. But that's not really a term that most Americans know. And I think we can probably get a lot further by inserting this problem into the vocabulary and the dialogue that's already happening in America. So that's what I'm excited about. Well, I think that's great. And and Joe uh, made reference
1: to this in uh, his remarks before. When I speak to uh, groups around the country, and not just uh, groups of potential clients for uh, legal aid programs, but... Groups of business people and bankers and people who have quite a few years of schooling. It's amazing the number of people whose understanding of access to civil justice is gained from law and order television shows and who are unaware that you can lose your house, you can lose custody of your children, you could be denied your veterans benefits And in fact, a lawyer will not be appointed for you that we as a society or a government somehow would have to uh, pay for that, which actually leads us into the justice gap. And Joe, I know that's something that you've talked a lot about over the last, well, throughout your career, but the justice gap as we define it is this vast gulf between the legal needs of low-income Americans and the resources available to meet those needs. And, you know, again, we use the term frequently in our advocacy about access to justice. But, you know, tell us a little bit about where we are in meeting the justice gap. I know you thought a lot about that uh, when you were in Congress as well as now.
2: Ron, we're, we're a long way from meeting the justice gap. And, and again, I think you framed it the right way. The justice gap is essentially the, the measure that we've tried to, to put in place and put some numbers around, around how much... The the gap between the people that have access to these rights, whose rights are being infringed, and what it would take to make sure that they had access to a lawyer to be able to protect them, right? So all that this is trying to do, this entire discussion, is about trying to make sure that the law applies equally to everyone. That's it. And the fact is that the federal government has recognized the fact that there are, in fact, um, civil legal protections that should be put in place that because of the way in which that legal system is funded, that there's not enough money in there, particularly for for, um, the poor. And so Legal Services Corporation was developed to try to actually help make grants to um, local community organizations and and legal aid organizations that were addressing it. The little bit of history here, right? In 1994, that was about $400 million in those grants. Three decades later, we're at about 465 million. For those grants, so over three decades we've increased it by about 65 million. The to put that in perspective here, during the pandemic, LSE estimated that to represent all of the eligible households at risk for eviction alone, just eviction, run, was 2.5 billion dollars, like just for eviction. So we have throughout our our our. Country and Rohan's spoken uh, really eloquently on this over, over the years, and it's motivated his entire focus on this in, in his career. We have chronically underfunded this legal system. And it means that LSC grantees, those, those local advocates and lawyers on the, on the ground, are turning away about 40% of eligible clients that make it to a legal aid provider's doors. And that was before a pandemic. So, what we need to do is Drastically rethink how we are going to try to provide access to legal protections to lower income people because the way we do it at the moment, literally, Ron, we spend as a government about as much money in providing access to that legal protections as Americans spend every year on Halloween costumes for their pets. That's the disparity.
1: Joe, thanks for that. And you and Rohan have painted an accurate and, you know, an accurately grim picture of of the justice gap and where we are today in meeting the gap. And what we're engaged in here today is how better to communicate that. And one thing that is important is that you're both thinking not only about sounding the alarm for the problem, but in identifying solutions to the problem. And, uh, you know, this is a fundamental part of our constitutional heritage. As you mentioned, it's in our constitution. It's uh, written on the Supreme Court. So this is an area we have to do better. And let's talk about how to do better. Joe, let's start out with money. Money is not the only answer, but it is an indispensable part of the answer. What can Congress do about the justice gap? During your service in Congress, you founded the Congressional Access to Legal Services Caucus. You know, could you explain why you did that? And progress that was made while you were in Congress and you know what we should do going forward. So the short answer to your question,
2: Ron, is pretty clear, right? Congress could give more money, and Congress should give more money, and Congress needs to do more money. The fact is, is that there's a huge gap, as we've already talked about, in order to actually meet the overall needs to to fully fund the system. And that um, that's gonna need more than just money. And that's where Rohan and his creativity and ingenuity has really stepped into this hole. And I'll, I'll let him talk about that because I think some of the opportunities there are really exciting to try to make sure that again, people's basic protections are, are met. The, I came into office having worked as a prosecutor, having, um, I spent a, about a year as a domestic violence prosecutor in Massachusetts. And it stunned me how I would arraign somebody on a charge of domestic violence and I would sit down and you'd have a, uh, a restraining order that would then be called and the judge would have to make a ruling on it. A restraining order is a civil issue. And so you would oftentimes have a victim who has just been abused hours before having to confront their accuser or the accused and subject to cross-examination hours later, oftentimes without any um, you know, understanding as to what was gonna happen. And that testimony could be used in a, in a criminal trial. And sometimes that criminal case, the outcome of that criminal case, could be decided in within moments at a time where somebody's going through just enormous amounts of trauma. And so I think part of the challenge here is that most federal lawmakers have no idea about that civil legal system, don't understand how it actually works in practice, don't understand the, the depth of the gap that exists. And what is needed in order to try to address it. And so that's really why um, I helped co-found um, that Access to, uh, to Legal Services Caucus was to provide information and knowledge to uh, other members of Congress, let them know that this isn't just uh, you know another um, program to try to s- spend additional money, but this was about trying to ensure the basic and adequate protection of legal rights that are codified in our laws and that this wasn't a left or right issue, but one that affects all of us every single day in every single county across our country. And it's why we actually were able to get really strong support from some major, you know, some of the biggest conservative legal voices in this country, uh, because this wasn't an issue that was just Democrat or Republican. This was just literally straight down the middle protection for the rights uh, implicated or, or addressed in our constitution.
1: To your point, a keynote speaker at our 40th anniversary uh, six or seven years ago was Justice Scalia. And as you know from your experience in Congress, we have many prominent uh, Republicans who are very effective advocates for increasing our budget and focusing more attention on access to justice.
2: Yeah, Justice Scalia is not known for his
1: uh, progressive bona fides. <laughs> He was right on uh, access to justice, civil justice in any event. But uh, Rohan, we talk about the justice gap, and Joe mentioned that our funding recipients are turning away uh, over 40% of the eligible people who make it to their door. That doesn't even account for the people who don't know that they may have a legal issue or have legal rights. It doesn't account for the people who know they have legal rights, but are unaware that there's a legal aid program to help them. In fact, we did a justice gap study just a few years ago, again, before the pandemic, which showed that only about 14% of low-income civil legal problems were met with adequate assistance. The other 86% or over 86% were met with no assistance or inadequate assistance. And The reason for this long windup is to say, even if we spend a lot more money, which we need to do, and even if we get a lot more pro bono lawyers to volunteer their times to work with legal aid programs to help uh, serve some of these 86% of our population, low-income population that are not getting the help they need, that's a pretty big gap to fill. And so part of the gap needs to be rethinking about how we deal with and how we resolve civil legal problems. And I know you've given a lot of thought to that. So tell us about you know, some of your thoughts in, in changing the system.
0: Yeah. So I think there's two uh, that are at the top of my list. The first is simplifying the legal system so that we can empower more people to access their rights on their own when they can't afford a lawyer. Uh, legal complexity as it exists today is a civil rights injustice. We've designed our system of justice around the assumption that everybody will be able to have a lawyer, which makes no sense when in areas of poverty law, if you could afford a lawyer, you wouldn't have the legal problem in the first place. So uh, to me, uh, we, we need to de- create simpler courts, processes, paperwork, forms. We should ban all Latin from the law, it should be under <laughs> a 10th grade reading level. And and uh, my own organization, Upsolve, we sought to create education and technology that people can use on their own to access their rights. We've started with bankruptcy. And today Upsolve is the largest way in America that low-income families access bankruptcy on their own. Uh, and we've relieved, just this past week, $400 million in debt just, crossed, um, just in the last two and a half years. And 200,000 people per month come to Upsolve to consumer free education. So that's the exciting thing, I think, around just simplifying the legal system. And this needs to be a cultural movement. You should understand that if you are a judge and you're creating a new legal form and you haven't sat next to somebody as they uh, a a normal person as they try to go through that legal form, then you're doing it wrong. Uh, And and you need to think about the complexity as uh, an injustice in of itself. The the second is we need to invite other professionals to provide assistance in routine areas of the law. If we were to rewrite the system of who's allowed to provide legal advice, we would never recreate what we have today. We'd never recreate a system where you need to spend three years and 100, 200K on your education just to provide the most basic legal advice. We need to reform these anti-civil rights, unauthorized practice of the law policies in every state that guarantee we'll never have equal rights under the law. Because what UPL rules do today is they restrict the supply of help that's available and if we continue to restrict the supply of help in the same way we do today, and we've done for the last hundred years, we will never reach equal rights under the law. So those are the two issues that uh, I'm passionate about. And I think we need to move forward on to ever realize the full promise that our founding fathers had of, of equal rights for all.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think both your points are well taken. I mean, imagine instead of designing a justice system, we were designing cars. Imagine if we're a car manufacturer. And the only input we're getting on the design of cars is coming from our engineers. We're not talking to consumers. We're not hearing what our potential customers and past customers are saying about safety or comfort or or anything else. We're just going to our engineers and saying, please design a car for yourself. And we, we need to listen to users. We need to understand what the justice system looks like from the perspective of people of all income levels for whom the justice system was intended. And with regard to these multiple levels of professionals to help out, again, the medical profession has long ago moved on from just having doctors be the only care providers. We've long had nurses, we now have nurse practitioners, we have other levels of medical assistance where meaningful substantive medical assistance can be rendered by people you know other than doctors and uh, we need to do the same in the legal profession. There's no reason that the legal profession should be uh, uh, limited in that way. Let me just ask you both sort of a penultimate question, which is, why are you here? How did you get here? Uh, Joe, you mentioned law school, but you know, why, why is this an important issue to you? You've devoted a lot of time to access to justice uh, when you were in Congress and you're still doing it today. What, now, why?
2: Ron, because I've seen up close and personally what happens when somebody does not is not able to avail themselves of the same protections that you or I or Rohan or, or others would be able to to take advantage of. And again, this isn't something about saying, "Hey, somebody deserves additional support or protection than somebody else." This is saying these protections are already put in place. Oftentimes, from a, you know a lawmaker's perspective, uh, former member of Congress. We would fight over and have these big debates over matters of, of law. You finally come together around a solution, you pass it. You know how have, have these laws that are put in place. The idea that some would not be able to, to avail themselves of the protections that you put in place because they don't know about them, right? How can you how can you sit there and have dedicate yourself to a legal system and building the structures of a legal system, only to then know that over 40% of the Americans that you seek to serve don't actually know about it, can avail themselves of it, and don't benefit from those protections, it's a massive structural inequity and failure of our system. And so I think if you understand that and you see the human consequence of it, whether it's a domestic violence victim that isn't able to, to get the protection and support that he or she needs, whether it's somebody who's getting evicted because of somebody knows how to access the law and somebody doesn't, the myriad other examples of this—if you've seen it and you know it, and you've dedicated so much time to it—and you see how that we still fall short—I don't think you can't not want to do something about it.
1: Rohan, you know, during college and then immediately after college, you have played a personal role in addressing the justice gap and ensuring that people can actually enforce their civil rights. Why? You know, why? Why that as opposed to, uh, you know, something else?
0: Yeah, my story starts way before college. My parents are both Indian immigrants. They grew up in India. Then they actually moved to New Zealand because they thought it'd be a better fit for their kids and the family they wanted to raise. Then they moved to Australia because they thought that that would be better. But they always wanted to move to America. And they ended up moving to America where, where I was raised. And for them, this is just such a special place where anybody could have just amazing opportunity, could have access to education, and could make a life of their own if they set their mind to it. And I know that's not the case in America today, but I really believe in that promise uh, that brought my parents here. And I just feel like there is nothing more important than being able to work on the American democracy every day. And in college, I thought I wanted to go to law school and pursue sort of this, this, uh, public policy um, work. And I, I ended up for a year, when I was in college, I actually took a semester off from Harvard, um, running a brick and mortar legal aid clinic, helping people one at a time, as just like Joe was saying, uh, they were walking in sort of with these issues around debt that were often because of tragic financial shocks. And there was this lifeline that just seemed so obvious that it should be available to folks in their shoes, but just wasn't because of the barriers that we put in place. And you can't unsee something like that. You can't unsee somebody who faced a medical emergency, fell into 55K medical debt, and then needs access to bankruptcy, but because of the system, isn't able to access it. And because I started to develop this passion in technology earlier in college, thought, oh my God, like there has got to be a better way to, and a faster way to create um, equal rights under the law. Um, and sort of that I, that I can play a small part in right now in the near term. So that's what led me to uh, start to build up, solve and excited by what it's become today. Um, but but right now, excited to go back to the original work around changing the system itself and, and public policy. And that's what I'm excited that um, it was able to sort of write that piece with Joe. And want I just keep doing is shift the narrative here because I think that that will uh, help us I uh, get a lot further um, in, in sort of inserting this problem into the national consciousness.
1: Joe Kennedy and Rohan Pavluri, thanks for your illuminating discussion about shifting the narrative on access to justice advocacy. More importantly, thanks for your leadership in calling America's attention to this fundamental civil rights injustice issue and identifying paths forward to correct this injustice.
0: Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.